Hello and welcome to The Next Page. I'm Natalie Alexander, and this is the podcast of the UN Library Geneva, where our focus is on advancing the conversation on multilateralism. This is episode 15, and today we're continuing our hashtag Multilateralism 100 series, which explores some of the issues and the people that have shaped multilateralism since the creation of the League of Nations to its transition to the United Nations that we have today. And this series is really about delving into history, as this year, 2019 and next, we mark the centenary of multilateralism in Geneva. When you think of the League of Nations, what comes to mind? There's actually a lot of research going on today about the League, which I found out in today's conversation. So what ideas are coming out now and what possibilities and ideas are still to come? For this conversation, we had two academics in the studio, Karen Kramskollega and Hakun Ikonomu, to share what they're up to, and also a recently published book that they edited called The League of Nations, Perspectives from the Present. So how did the League shape modern multilateralism? What are some innovations that have continued today? And what's being seen in new ways that could shape future research? They both share their views on this and also walk us through some insights from the book, which brings in new ideas from a range of young and upcoming researchers. They both share their views on this and also walk us through some insights from the book, which brings in new ideas from a range of young and upcoming researchers. This conversation was a lot of fun, and as always, I learned something new. So we've got some links to further resources in the podcast description as well, if you're interested to learn more. In the meantime, enjoy. Karen and Hakon, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yep. It's great to have you back. You were recently in the library for a panel discussion as a library talk, as you are the editors of the book published this year called The League of Nations Perspectives from the Present. Congratulations on the book. I have it with me now. It's, it's a really great read. Thank you very much. Firstly, just for our listeners who may not have seen the book or heard about the book, could you share with us briefly how you came to work on it together? What's fascinated you so much about the League and triggered you to work on this? Well, the book started out, I should mention, as a blog. So basically the idea was to, to bring as much uh, ongoing research on the League of Nations into, into a, a format that was both kind of a, a compelling read, engaging read, but also could give a readers a sense of what's going on in the field of international history uh, related to the League of Nations and uh, invite readers into kind of uh, different themes, different avenues of research that is going on now and that we think will shape the, the research in the, in the coming years. So that was kind of the idea. And it started out as a blog, a research blog on Karn Gramskjöldager's project on the League of Nations Secretariat. And we realized basically that there are that there's so much exciting research going on. So we, we started out writing ourselves and then we invited one and then we invited another. And mm -hmm. suddenly we just kind of realized that we were turning into this hub of new research and that people were con starting to contact us and saying, I'm doing a PhD on this, doing a postdoc on that. And we said, sure, come along. And, and we invited people in. And then we realized that this uh, started to synthesize into, as we saw it, three big themes. One on the, on the secretariat itself, the administrative part. One on uh, transnational issues, especially 
the transition from empire to nation state uh, and uh, economic and technocratic cooperation. And then a last thing uh, which had, has to do with the material and, and narrative presentation of the league itself. So through the research, basically, we saw that, okay, this is, this is something that is more than a research blog. Uh, and so we wanted to curate it into a nice book. From blog to book. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> The reason why we started doing the blog in the first place was that we were running a research project on the on the League of Nations Secretariat, a project that started out from from an observation that there was a lot of exciting League of Nations research going on, showing how the League has been formative in many central regards for multilateralism in the 20th century in, in general. But one point that had really, hadn't really been picked up on before was the role of the institutional infrastructure of the League and how that also came to shape the way multilateralism has been conducted. So, so we started out from a more narrow interest in the institutional infrastructure and in the secretariat and and once we started going on that obviously that has tentacles into many different policy areas and we connected with many different researchers and then as, as Håkon said they started getting in touch and and we started publishing blog posts on many different issues. Great. As researchers today how does it feel to be able to dig into archives and all of this knowledge about the League? What fascinates you so much about the time of the League? For me I think there are two entry points to that one is my original interest in in Danish foreign policy where I worked on on the interwar period and it became clear to me how much of an impact the league as an institution had on on the Scandinavian states and the way they conducted foreign policy in the interwar period and how that that had a long-term effect on on their sort of foreign policy trajectories and then combined with the return of populism totalitarianism um, new forms of crisis for international cooperation today that resonates in many ways with the with the political and economic crisis that played out in the 19 30s, which really sort of prompted me at least to to stick to that period and dig into it in more in more detail because I think it really speaks to us uh, today. I come from uh, post-war multilateral studies of a multilateral diplomacy. So I was working on on the European Community before I started this project on the League of Nations. So I kind of, kind of came backwards into the topic mm. of the League of Nations. And what fascinates me now is basically the way you see that the League of Nations was kind of a laboratory for all these kinds of ways that uh, the post-war order functioned, both in terms of what they chose to build on and what they chose to refrain from doing again. So in that sense, the, studying the League for the past three years has really been a kind of an eye-opening experience in terms of uh, the way we need to read write about and understand also the post-war international order and there's much left to be done there as well so so that's kind of mm. my way in yeah and so talking about writing and reading why is this book an important read do you think what does it contribute to our current repository on on the league of nations well, I think it, it makes two main contributions. One is, as, as Håkon has already touched upon, uh, showcasing some of the new 
like really brand new League of Nations research. Some of it hasn't really reached published form before. So we have a long, lot of uh, junior researchers contributing uh, to the book. So I think if you want to know where the League of Nations research is really at, <laughs> then it's a good book to read. But we've also tried to highlight how the League of Nations is an important site more broadly for international history research at the moment. A lot of the innovation that goes on in the field of international history right now uses the League as an arena for trying out new perspectives, cultural perspectives, gender perspectives, research into international organization communication. All these issues have been tried out in relation to the to the League of Nations for the first time, or at least in, in new ways. And, and I think we also try to highlight that, that this is historiographical topic that has really prompted a lot of new and innovative research. Who do you think should be reading this? Is it is it for other researchers or public servants like myself or the public? All of the above. Uh, <laughs> no, I think uh, <laughs> I think it's really it's it's a strange hybrid of a book in some ways because it's a book that springs out of a blog, and the point of the blogs were to force researchers to try to be succinct, try to be clear, and try to kind of communicate their research in, a, in an engaging manner where you pitch the problem and what you're doing in the first three, four sentences, which is not something researchers usually do. <laughs> so that was a very nice exercise in the first place, both for us and for the other ones that joined in. And then we realized that that's actually a very nice format to communicate research in an engaging manner. So that combined with some very nice pictures and kind of a nice stylistic work combined with the anniversary, obviously, made it into a more broadly conceived book that I guess is for the general re readership, but it's not a book that you, for example, need to read from cover to cover to understand because it's all these, these kind of tidbits, tastes of different angles of uh, different uh, policy areas and different layers of the League of Nations, how it uh, relates to the contemporary world. So you can kind of go in anywhere in the book and actually get something out of it. So that's that's the idea. So general readership and obviously also historians and uh, and uh, civil servants. Yeah, I, having having read the book, it was great to be able to open up a chapter and learn something in in, in half an hour of reading. And, and for example, the chapter on the the hiring of women in the League of Nations Secretariat. Um, I learned some great new things uh, that I didn't know in, in just one chapter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's kind of the point. Yeah, you mentioned very briefly, Hakon, the the structure of the book. Yeah, tell us how how it's it's designed. What does it share? So basically, it's structured into three parts. The first one is called Inside the League, and what we want to do there is basically to be, bring uh, administrative history back into the the field of international history and also the League of Nations historiography. So what we want to do there is to open up the the machinery of the League of Nations because that's probably the most uh, most lasting innovation of the league as well in many ways and we can return to that mm. but i mean that's that's what we wanted to do to open that up and to explore new perspectives on the secretariat so that has to do with the leadership uh, the directors how they worked who they were the gender perspective on on the uh, the staff the very innovative interpretation and translation surveys and these kind of things we explore in that section. The next section we call the League in Context and by that we mean 
two kinds of contexts. One is what we could call broadly sovereignty governance. So basically the minorities regime and the mandates regime, which uh, are uh, contested, troublesome legacies in many ways of the League of Nations, which has been studied in detail before, but where there are now many researchers that are engaging with it in new ways. So we wanted to kind of showcase that and also connected more explicitly perhaps to the United Nations uh, trusteeships, for example. And the other kind of con big context we wanted to place it in is the emergence of technocracy and expertise as an increasingly important ingredient of international governance or global governance, which starts or at least explodes onto the scene with the League of Nations. And clearly you see, particularly when the political side of the league kind of uh, dwindles in the 1930s, you see that that part of the league is what remains and is, is expanded upon. And, and that's very important for how the legacy of the league goes into the post-war era. And the last part is called projections and presence and brings in cultural and media history mm. and looks at two aspects. And this is really, a, I think, a field where not where there a lot remains to be done, basically. But there is a, some very exciting research going on now. One part looks at how the League was narrated. So both how the League tried to present and convey itself and how outside media, literature, the arts looked at the League and presented the League. So both from the inside and the outside. And then uh, the League's material existence. So that has to do with where we are now, the Palais des Nations, for example, mm -hmm. which has a very, very interesting history, which says a lot about kind of some of the tensions as to what the League was supposed to represent. Old diplomacy or some sort of new modern way of dealing with international relations. Both are probably true. Karn has a chapter on the working conditions, for example, in the League in, the, in 1930, I think the report mm -hmm. is from, which is uh, quite shocking in some ways <laughs> and, and makes for a, a very interesting read as to some of these kind of connotations you have about luxurious diplomacy or something like that. That's not the case. Yeah, I guess that, that's one of the <laughs> aspects we probe into the for the first time, this issue of status and legitimacy of international civil service, where it's usually perceived as something very luxurious and privileged, and this is sort of the high flyers of international diplomacy, which also is part of the criticism that sometimes are directed at, at international organizations is that they're overpaid, very privileged people working there. Then if you actually dig into what it looked like in the late 1920s and early 1930s, you find the most horrible working conditions, people working in moldy, cold, hot, windy, wet <laughs> conditions inside the first headquarters of the, of the League of Nations. And, and bringing out that tension, I think, is, is one interesting aspect of the book. And seeing all these subjects, all of them seem very interesting to me. Are there any parts of the book that are particularly striking that you found? Any ideas that people don't necessarily associate with, with the League of Nations? Besides, of course, the story you just told. <laughs> well, well, I think there there are so many interesting chapters to choose from, but I guess one theme that hasn't been brought out as clearly 
as we do before, is one you've already touched upon, and that's the gender perspective on, on the League of Nations. Looking at international organizations in that perspective really brings new insights because the League of Nations and subsequent international organizations usually stress gender equality as part of their mission and, and part of how they want their institutions to operate. And, and we have one contribution by Miriam Piquet, who is right now working on a PhD in this issue of then how did it actually look? To which degree were women recruited? Into what positions? How far up the organization did they make it? Where did the glass ceiling set in? Because it did, like in most other organizations, and exploring the the league from that perspective, I think at least brought very new insights to me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the aspects that she really highlights is the way that women working in the league were kind of erased from the history of the league because they didn't have the pay grade or the position that warranted attention from historians traditionally. But if you look at what they actually did, they did the work of a member of section or they did the work of a director. And to show that kind of the, that disparity between their pay grade, their their recognition on the one hand mm. and their actually work, their actual work is very, very important. And I think Miriam is part of a new wave of history of international organizations that I think will bring forth a big part of the organization that has kind of remained a little bit in the dark. Mm. That's that's uh, very exciting. Mm. Yeah. It is exciting to see how this research is opening up new new pieces of information for us now. We actually recently had a podcast episode with the author John Burley. He was the co-author of, of a book on Eric Drummond and his legacies as, as the first Secretary General of the League of Nations. And he touched upon his insights, not only on the League, but also to the word failure, which is, is often connected to the League. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your own reflections here through your research and this book? Well, I think what we've tried to do and, and what most League of Nations researchers have tried to do over the last five or ten years is not to engage directly with this issue of failure because it's an obvious fact that the League was created to maintain peace after the First World War and it failed at that. That's not really debatable, but, but you gain so much more interesting insights if instead of asking that question and looking into that question, looking at what the League also did and some of the trajectories of the League that that points into the post-war period, some of the institutional innovations, mm. some of the policy areas that actually transferred across the, the Second World War, economic cooperation, international health cooperation issues like that, then you see a completely different picture of the League that is also part of, of the overall understanding of what this organization did. So I think it's both perspectives are important, but but you, you don't get, gain enough insights if you only look at the failure. Mm. No, I think with Susan Peterson, the historian, wrote in 2007, she mm. said what we need to do is look at how it worked. That's kind of the the oper- that should be the operative question, and that's the operative question that people that historians have kind of dealt with for the last I guess uh, ten uh, mm. fifteen years now, which has prompted a lot of exciting research that mm. is not bogged down by that that question of failure. Doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't return to failure as perhaps a useful analytical category sometime in the future, but it needs it means that. 
it was important for historians to remove themselves from a very traditional diplomatic history, which clearly defined and read the league through the lens of failure, which, mm. which kind of made them sort out a lot of important and exciting mm. aspects of the league. And I think it partly also has to do with the UN and the UN's need for many years to consciously kind of disassociate themselves with the League of Nations, at least uh, in name. And the United Nations are now in a different place mm -hmm. where they can re-engage with that history, which this podcast and, and the centenary and many other things are proof of. And I think that's very healthy also for the United Nations. So I think both historians and, and the organization itself and mm. more broadly, we're, we're kind of re-engaging with that that era and, and the League as an organization. And um, I think that's also what's reflected in the, in Burley's book on Drummond yeah. is that there are continuities there and they can be teased out by looking at a character such as Drummond, who was one of the big institutional innovators of, yeah. of the League, that if you approach the organization from that perspective, you see some of these long-term continuities. Yeah, exactly. I, he's been in earlier literature kind of written off a little bit because of his bureaucratic style in a way and because his role was limited as a diplomat so so in that sense he's kind of resurfaced surfaced also as a kind of a bureaucratic figure that has more impact on later trajectories in multilateralism than has been acknowledged in the literature mm. hitherto yeah mm. Burley did mention some of the the continuations from the league to to our multilateral international mm. civil service today some institutions, the oath of office, which is quite um, almost exactly the same as that given to staff of the League of Nations. Mm. What are some key innovations that you could share through your research and this book that the League brought to multilateralism? Well, I think starting from the inside out, I think the the whole concept of an international civil servant forming the core of an organization such as, as this is one of the really key conceptual and practical innovations that came out of the League. The assumption that working for an international organization means you stop working for and representing your home country. You have one loyalty and that lies with the organization. You work independently from nation states and other interests. You're neutral in the dealings with any member of the public approaching the organization. You can make a career out of being an international civil servant working there from your early 20s to your late 60s. You have a pension paid by the organization when you retire. That was something that was completely unknown before the league was set up and something that has carried into the post-war period mm. uh, almost unchanged. That some of these very basic conceptualization of who runs an international organization and what defines them, that's really one of the, the key uh, innovations, I think, of the, of the league. Yeah, and there you have a very direct link, I would say, with several, Drummond himself writing a very important report together with former League colleagues in London and during the Second World War, where he kind of distills the uh, experience of the League of Nations Secretariat and passes it on very directly. And it's picked up by the United Nations and uh, specifically by a former League official, Thanasis Agnides, that takes this on and and uh, is part of formulating the standard of conduct for the United Nations, which becomes this little booklet that everyone gets, which is also Agnides' suggestion. And the principles there, the international the loyalty to the organization and the international setup of each section or department, that it's not 
based on nationality, but is functionally divided. That's a very, very important legacy that is not important only for the UN, but is picked up by every international organization after after the Second World War and is directly linked to that experience. So in that sense, that is at least uh, one of the really big legacies of the League of Nations that that becomes the standard for every international organization. I hope that any listeners who are interested will be able to read the book and find out more for themselves. But you, you mentioned also that there's still a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of new research coming up, a lot of a lot of things you're working on yourself. How do you think this book and, and your, your continuing projects are helping the future of this research? Well, I think it, it points to directions, as Håkon already mentioned, that really merits more interest and and where we hope other researchers would be interested in in exploring some of the perspectives that we are opening up as as Hogan mentioned particularly maybe the issues that have to do with sort of the cultural history of the league media representations fictional representations of the league the architecture of the whole material cultural heritage of international organizations i think there's some really interesting perspectives coming out of the book there where researchers have started working but where a lot more research really could be done yeah i think maybe another thing which obviously links to your project karn is uh, is the genealogy of the international civil servant mm. and international administrations i think karn's project is really set the agenda and really opened up that field and now it's perhaps for future projects to kind of link up with that and move into the post war era and also perhaps start to include international organizations uh, more broadly, uh, regional organizations, and try to move towards what could be in the future a kind of global history of international administrations, which I think is a very big mm. field that is completely open for anyone who wants to grab it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I wish you all the best with this, with this good work. If our listeners would like to find out more or find further resources, are there any particular links or, or projects that you can share? Well, we have a project website that we would encourage everybody to visit where we have the original research blog, which also includes other blog posts than the ones we were able to fit into the book. So we would definitely invite people to take a look around there. Yeah. And there you will also have all the publications, more research-heavy uh, <laughs> publications with links, uh, with PDFs mm. and everything. So that's a nice place uh, to to start. Yeah. Fantastic. So we'll give listeners the, the links in the podcast description, also a link to the book if you would like to know more. Karen and Hakon, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating uh, listen, being able to listen to you. If there's one thing you'd like our listeners to learn from this episode, one thing to take away, what would it be? Well, I think uh, you see now with both politicians, academics, just the general public, the media, the interwar period has somehow become a kind of a trope that everyone engages with to try to understand our contemporary challenges, both with the uh, politics more generally and with the multilateralism particularly. And I think uh, some commentators, they're very direct in the way they kind of say, this is Trump is like X, but that's not kind of how we see the use of history and uh, the use of the League of Nations. I think it's more a very interesting space, you could say, to kind of mm -hmm. reflect upon some of these challenges without being very explicit in saying this is exactly the same as 
something we're facing today. And in, in that sense, I think what you can take away from a book on the League of Nations is to see that even in times of crisis, for example, even when an international organization is surviving on a bare minimum, for example, during the Second World War or during the crisis of uh, Avenol's leadership of the League of Nations, multilateralism can be important in itself, just keeping it going so that it can kind of transfer its knowledge, transfer its experiences into some situation on the other side of a crisis that is better. So well, that's perhaps one of those things that, that is perhaps important to keep in mind as well, as we are where we are now, that, that the ideals of an organization and its bare kind of existence is also important, even when it's deadlocked, even when it's cut to a minimum, even in times of deep, deep crisis. Yeah. Yes, and pointing to the to the resilience and, and the resources that are still active in organizations, even if they're under extreme pressure. Um, and I think that speaks to your first point, Håkon, because a lot of times when the interwar period is called upon in in public and political discussions right now. It's as a as a site of crisis and collapse and deterioration. And I think this book also holds an important story about resilience and how mm. it's actually possible to also innovate and and develop multilateral structures in different ways and, and in new ways, even under extreme political pressure. It's a good way to, to reflect. Thank you both again for, for joining us. And we hope to see you soon at the library. All the best. Thank, Thank you. you.